You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. I'm Josh. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're going to start off with an uncomfortable question. If you only had one day to live, how would you spend it? I know that's maybe a sobering thought, an imaginative exercise. But I want you to think about that. Consider that for just a moment. If you only had one day to live, how would you spend it? For many of us, perhaps we would spend that day with our families. Uh, maybe we would throw caution to the wind and we would purchase a few extra things, you know, add the guacamole on the burrito, burrito bowl. Uh, maybe you have a bucket list of things you've always wanted to do, and you would spend your last day trying to squeeze every ounce of fun and happiness out of that day. This is an interesting question to consider, and yet when we think about our lives, we don't have the luxury of knowing, or maybe it's, you wouldn't consider a luxury, maybe you would consider a curse to know when your last day would be. It often comes for us like, a thief in the night. And yet Jesus Christ, when you read the Gospels, was very aware that the time was approaching for his death on the cross. And in fact, we're in the Gospel of John in this teaching series, I Am, looking at seven of the I Am statements from Jesus himself in the Gospel of John. And the Apostle John spends about 30% about a third of his gospel on the events from just one day. Do you want to guess what one day that is? Jesus' last day. The events leading up to his crucifixion. We're going to be in John 14 today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 14. Uh, We're going to be looking at part of what's known as the farewell discourse. This is a series of teachings from Jesus uh, before he goes to the cross. And we get to see how Jesus spent his last day. He spent it likely different than the way that we would spend it. He didn't try to check off items from a bucket list. He didn't even spend it with his family. He spent his last day before his death celebrating the Passover through worship, through a meal, He spent that time washing his disciples' feet. He spent that time teaching them, teaching his followers these essential, important, these necessary lessons that they would need to navigate the days ahead. And he spent his last day deep in prayer. And so when we read about Jesus' last day, This is significant. These are some of the most important lessons that in Jesus's own mind that he felt like his followers needed to navigate uh, his upcoming, his impending death. And so with that in mind, that's where we are. We're in the upper room in John 14. The Last Supper has already taken place. Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. And Jesus has just predicted that Peter, one of his closest followers, will deny him. With that in mind, that's setting the scene, let's read in John 14. We'll start in verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus speaks in this passage some words to help his disciples not, not have what's called a troubled heart. That word troubled is the Greek word terasso, and it can mean trouble, distress, agitate, or stir up. Is that helpful to think about something being agitated or stirred up? Maybe a helpful picture to have in your mind if you've ever been camping or hiking up in the mountains and you come across an alpine lake that's just perfect, like it's sheltered with the trees and with the, the mountain peaks, and you see it's just crystal clear, it almost looks like a mirror reflection of the image above it, right? Of the scenery above it. Now imagine you're standing at that lake, not in perfect weather with the sun out. Imagine you're standing there in a violent storm. The lake is a little bit different, isn't it? It's a little bit agitated, stirred up. It's terrasso. Now let me just ask you this for a moment. Imagine your heart is that lake. What's the condition of your heart today? Are you at peace? Are you calm? Can you be still before God and in his presence? Or if you're just honest, there's a little agitation. There's difficulty. Maybe there's sorrow. Maybe there's something happening in your soul today where where you've been robbed of your peace. See, the disciples get the idea at this point in the Last Supper that this is not some fun night out with friends right? Jesus is talking about one of them betraying him. He's talking about Peter denying him. And they start to also sense this trouble within the heart of their rabbi. And it's rubbing off on them. And so Jesus notices this, and he also knows what they're going to go through. I mean, not near the suffering that he himself will go through, but they will be there, some of them witnesses even of his trial, of his beatings, and even of his, his crucifixion itself. They would be scattered, the disciples, for fear of their own lives, and he knows that their hearts are troubled, and so he gives us three things, if you're taking notes, there's three truths about Jesus that can ease your troubled soul. The first thing is that Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows perfectly what you're going through. Yes, in John 14, Jesus uses the word terrasso. It's used for the disciples. But in John 13, it was used to describe Jesus, the same exact word, John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He gets it. He knows what you're going through. Hebrews 4 says we have a high priest who can relate to us even in our weaknesses. Maybe you've seen the ad campaign, He Gets Us. Has anyone seen those, those ad campaigns? That's, that's essentially what it's based off of. This whole idea is that God gets you. He understands you. He knows what you're going through, even the pain, even the suffering. I think about later on that same evening, Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with sweat drops of blood pouring out of his forehead. That's how deeply troubled in his heart, in his spirit, he was knowing what was coming for him. And yet, in this moment, his concern is not for his own troubled spirit. Who is it for? It's for us. 
It's for you. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He understands. He knows perfectly what you're going through. One of the the, uh, ways to actually build a barrier between you and someone that you're trying to help who's suffering is to have a, a surface level understanding, a shallow understanding of their situation, and to utter that line, I understand. When someone's pouring out their heart, and maybe you don't really, like you've never gone through a situation, anything like what they're going through, but you, know, you don't know, quite know what to say, and so you kind of just say, I get it, I understand. It builds a wall, doesn't it, between you and that person, where they, they almost wonder, how could you? How could you understand? You've never gone through the same kind of grief, and yet, in a different sense, if someone is pouring out their heart and their soul to you, and you have gone through something very, very similar, for you to say in that moment, listen, I've, this is what I, I've been through this, this same situation. I understand. It's actually one of the, the most beautiful ways to suffer with someone in that moment, to show them that you truly understand what they're going through, that you get them. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. He gets us. He gets us. The second truth that should give us peace to our troubled souls is that Jesus is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. What is his command? Believe in God, believe also in, believe also in me, is what he said. Now, this is a difficult truth, and yet it it just is true that often the difficult emotions like worry and anxiety are a byproduct of lack of faith in God. And I know that's a difficult truth to wrestle with, and yet we see it consistently throughout Scripture. When the disciples go to Jesus time and time again, and they're worried, everything's chaotic, right? They're in the boat, and there's a storm. Don't you care about us? What is Jesus' rebuke? You of little, of little faith. Have a little faith. Often what happens when we go through suffering, when we experience anxiety is the first thing to go is our trust, either our trust in God's power, can he even do something? Our trust in God's character, does he even care about me? Does God even love me? Why is he letting me go through this? And yet remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, a teaching on worry from Matthew 6, 26. Look at what he says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And look at this next line. Are you not more valuable than they? Jesus cares about you. He loves you. Maybe this week, if you're experiencing that troubled soul, go outside and just try to find a bird to look at. Any kind of bird will do. And just remember, as you see the birds of the air, that God in his general providence is holding all things together and he created this variety within nature itself and God cares about even the birds, even that raven that's picking the trash out of the dumpster. He cares about even the birds of the air and just think about that line. How much more does God care about you? Are you not more valuable than they? And so we have this command from Jesus Believe in God. We might say, trust God. Trust also in me. See, times of suffering are the times when often our trust in God wavers, and yet those are the times where we need to trust God the most. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus is trustworthy. And the third truth about Jesus that can give peace to your troubled soul is that Jesus is not done yet. He's not done yet. I'll tell you something that shakes us to the very core of who we are, death. 
Death is something that causes us to be troubled in our soul, whether it's your own imminent diagnosis or whether it's the loss of a loved one that you're grieving through. Death comes for us all, but even in the face of death, Jesus says, we can have peace. Because the place that he's going is not a physical place. The place that he's going is he's saying, I'm going to my death, is what he's referring to. He's going to die on the cross. And yet in that, and we might say through that, he's going to prepare a place for us. He's going to the Father. And he's going to come back and to bring us with him that where he may be, we, where he is, we may be also. Maybe some of you were Christians in the early 90s. You grew up, live in, you're familiar with the church in the early 90s, the Christian music scene, some of the best hits. Christian Radio, Audio Adrenaline in 1993, they released a song called Big House. Anyone heard that song? Yeah. Here, here's, the, here's the song. It's, it's, I won't sing it for you. You can look it up later. <laughs> it's based on this passage from John 14. It's re- reference to God's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Okay, some of you were there in the 90s. <laughs> it's a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big house. It's my father's house. Okay. So that's the song. And we kind of get this picture, right? Where Jesus says, I'm going to a place, my father's house, and there's many rooms. And this is kind of like riffing on that idea. But the reality is God's not this American dad. (laughs) It paints a picture. And it's a fun, I'm not like slamming. It's it's a fun picture, it's an imaginative, like, it's just that kind of like America, he's got a grill with the apron that says world's best chef or whatever, like grill boss or whatever, and he's there and he's just waiting for you with a hot dog. He's got the brats ready and you know, whatever. And yet we can kind of get fixated on this, you know, the physical place, like what's it like? What's heaven like in the streets of gold? And even, even the king... James Version actually translates one of these words. In my father's house, there's many mansions. And it's this Greek word, mone. The reason why there's a little bit of difference in interpretation of what that word, uh, Greek word, mone, means is it's extremely rare in Scripture. I'll tell you how many times it's used in the entire Bible, both in the Greek version of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's only used two times. In my father's house, there are many mone. Is it mansions? Is it a football field? What is it? And it's helpful to read the second time that it shows up because the second time this Greek word shows up is actually later in John chapter 14, where Jesus is referencing the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers. Look at John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we... This is a reference to the Trinity, by the way, Father, Son, and Spirit. We will come to him and make our home, our monet, that's that same word for rooms in John, uh, earlier in John 14, we will make our home with him. Now, obviously, when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit is your roommate and he rents your guest bedroom. Like, this is your room, you can move in here, and this is the master, and here's the... Here's the TV room, right? We're not talking about like the Holy Spirit physically is like has a room in your house or even necessarily that there's a compartment in your body that that's the part where the Holy Spirit lives and there, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? 
What this idea is, make our home in you, is an idea of God's presence is there with you every second of every day. Does that make sense? It's more about presence than it is about a place. And we can get so fixated on the mansions and the football fields and the grills and it's a big, big table and the place that we actually miss what I believe is the primary point that Jesus is trying to get at. Where I am, you may be also. It's about God's presence. Do you believe that the best part about heaven is not the place, it's the person of God? Is that you will truly be in God's presence, uninhibited, that you will truly be there, and God will be our God, and we will be his people. And that should give us this hope, even in the face of death itself, that death is not the end, but he will come back and he will bring us with him. And the beautiful uh, truth of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will get to, we won't explore this more today, but later on in John 14, you can study this, you can read this later, is Jesus says, it's even to your advantage that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can be poured out on all believers because that's the first fruits, get this, of heaven. It's the first taste of heaven is that God's real presence will be there, not as a roommate at your house. There's not a Craigslist ad, Holy Spirit, you wanna come? It's with you every moment, every second of every day. Are you tasting that? Are you experiencing that? Are you relying on that? Are you walking by the Holy Spirit today? And those three truths about Jesus, regardless of your circumstances, will give you peace. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus is trustworthy. And Jesus, get this, he's not done yet. There's a hope of heaven. There's a heavenly home. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of that right here and right now. Let's continue through the text. John 14, verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, how many, everyone say it? No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Did anyone have a teacher that told you there's no such thing as a stupid question? I don't know if I buy into that. Uh, I, often in scripture, we see these questions that I, maybe we'll, not, we'll give Thomas the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's not a stupid question, but it's, a, it's a, certainly a simple question. It's telling that he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about is not like physically, he's going through his death is what he's talking about, right? Uh, and so he's like, so which way? Like he's asking this question. It's, it's evident that Thomas doesn't really get the gist of what Jesus is saying. And yet, this simple question leads to the one, one of the most profound declarations of Christ's identity in all of the gospels, okay? I am the way and the truth, and the life. This is the proper, sometimes I say, like, there, there might be a better way to translate this. This is the precise, exact way to translate this. There's a definite article before each one of these three nouns. Everyone say, the way. The way. Everyone say, the truth. the truth. Everyone say, the life. the life. He's not the true living way, okay? That's not an appropriate way to translate it. He is, there's, so this is, a, you got a three for one. This is a bargain, okay? 
This is an I am statement, but really there's three separate truths that Jesus is talking about here. And we're going to look at these three truths of the person, the identity of Christ. First, the way. This is maybe primarily what Jesus is talking about because he's answering Thomas's question about the way. How can we know the way? Jesus, it, we might say it like this. Jesus paved the way back to God. He paved the way back to God. He didn't show us the way back to God as if to say, hey, go that way. Like, give us a set of directions, and we're on our own, and we have to figure it out and navigate as best as we can. Jesus went before us. He paved the way back to God. Now, when I say back to God, that's really significant because for all of us, our stories begin not really knowing God, distant from God, separated, isolated, with a broken relationship. Here's one thing that sin does. Sin separates us from God. It destroys our relationship with God, but the story of Scripture doesn't begin that way. The story of Scripture begins, Genesis 1 and 2, with Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect relationship with God. And this is something that we've lost as a result of sin in the heart of mankind. And so really, there's this longing in the heart of every single human being, I believe on planet Earth, Maybe you're here today and you would argue against this because you're like, listen, I don't know if I have that long, but here, just hear me out. I believe that every single human being written on the soul, on the heart of every human being is a longing to be in right relationship with God. And we try to fill that hole and to satisfy that longing in all sorts of ways that just aren't doing it. No amount of drugs or food or Netflix or relationships or success or money or houses or whatever, mansions or football yards or whatever, is going to satisfy that deep longing because we are the created, not the creator. And deep in the, in the soul of every single human being on planet Earth is this longing. Our hearts are re restless until they find rest in God. And so what Jesus has done is he's actually paved the way. Now, how did he do that? Again, it's not just go this way. What Jesus has done, he says, I am going to my death. The one man who lived a perfect life, a sinless life, never once sinned and never should have deserved to die. The son of God, he went and he suffered and died in our place on the cross. That's how he made the way. He paved the way. He showed us the way. And he invites us back into a relationship with God, that you can be reconciled with God. That relationship that is broken, it can be made right because of Christ Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's just the first one of three, okay? Number two, the truth. Jesus reveals the truth about God, humanity, and the world. It's important that we say the truth, not a truth. The concept of truth has been really under attack since the Enlightenment. It's this idea of people can have their own version of truth. Jesus does not just give us one perspective on truth or even share his truth, and you get to decide if it's your truth or not. Jesus reveals, everyone say, the truth. 
the truth about God, humanity, and the world. This is what differentiates Jesus from other religious teachers. Every other religious teacher, even myself as a preacher, is trying to understand concepts and share them in a way that makes sense. Is that, you get that? Jesus is not trying to understand the truth, nor is he even saying, I have access to the truth. Get this. He says, I am the truth. Do you ever meet someone and you say, man, he tells it like it is. Jesus not only tells it like it is, he knows how it is because he's the author of reality itself. You want to know what God's like? Listen to Jesus. You want to know the true nature of humanity? Listen to Jesus. You want to know, you want to know about the world? You want to know how to navigate the, the, the trials of this life? Listen to Jesus. You want to know your identity, your calling? Listen to Jesus. You want to know where all of history is headed? Listen to Jesus. He is not just a source of truth. He's not giving you his opinion about truth. He is the truth. I'll tell you what sin does. It not only separates us from God, it distorts our minds. It darkens our hearts. It prevents us from actually seeing things the way that they are. And so this is phenomenal. Jesus is solving that second problem of sin. We find truth when we find Jesus. And then the third I am statement, I am the life, teaches us that Jesus offers us eternal life. This is the Greek word zoe. Can you say that? Zoe. This is one of the reasons our third daughter is named Zoe. I love that it. it's one of my favorite Greek words. My wife and I both took Greek in college, by the way. Also, Zoe's just a nice name for, for, uh, for a daughter. Anyways, this is Zoe life. There's different words for life in Greek. Maybe you've heard this before. There's bios, it's like a physical life. There's suke, which is kind of talking about uh, your mental kind of life, this, this, this idea of uh, experiencing life. But Zoe life is really unique in some ways to the, the Gospel of John. He refers to the kingdom of heaven. You might read the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's Gospel, but John just calls it simply Zoe, life, true Life. Now, eternal life has two senses. There's first everlasting life, which is life on and on and on and on, which is like life forever. This is the reality that death is not the end for those who are in Christ, but we will live with him. We will be, there's a resurrection from the dead when Jesus comes back, and we will live, we will reign with him on the new heavens and the new earth. That's life everlasting. Those who believe in Jesus will live even though they die in a physical sense, Right? But this is also life abundant, like we looked at in John chapter 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundant. That's obviously not quantity. It's not this duration. It's quality. It's a certain kind of life that those who have Jesus have that life right here and right now. We looked at the first two problems that sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin darkens our minds. Here's the third problem. Sin always leads to death. It always leads to death. And in response to that, Jesus, through his victorious resurrection from the dead, not only claims to be the life, but he demonstrates power over death in his resurrection from the dead. And he offers that eternal life to you. Thomas Akempis in the 1400s said it like this, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing, and without the life, there is no living. 
And I would, I would add to that, and without Jesus, there's not any of it. See, we looked at these beautiful promises of Jesus. He's trustworthy. He knows what you're going through. But the reality is we don't have access to the promises of Jesus without fully accepting the person of Jesus. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? You can't have the blessings that Jesus promises without fully accepting and embracing what Jesus claims to be. Who is he anyways? He's the way, the truth, and the life. And this is a difficult, this is a beautiful passage, but this is a difficult passage, culturally speaking. Why is he being so exclusive? Why does he say no one comes to the Father except through me? Why didn't he say he's one way, he's one truth, and he's one version of life? Why is he making these kinds of claims? I mean, who does he think he is? I'll tell you who he thinks he is. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's the preexistent son. Come into our, into our world in flesh, and he's lived a sinless life, and he's on the eve of his death on a cross where you would make a way. That's who he thinks he is. Is he being too exclusive? Is he being... This is what I mean when I say he does not leave us with the option to stay on the fence about who he is. He makes the strongest claims out of any teacher from any religion that's ever walked on planet Earth. It elicits a strong response. You can either hate him, you can say he's demon-possessed, call him a sinner, say he's insane. That's what the Pharisees were saying. Or you can declare, you can bow down and worship him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? Amen. That's who he is. Is he being too exclusive? I mean, if he was lying... Maybe we could say he's being arrogant or insane, but, there, but let me just pose this question for you. If you're still on the fence with Jesus, what if he's telling the truth? What if he actually rose from the grave three days later? What if the hundreds of witnesses who saw him were telling the truth? What if the billions of Christians over the last 2,000 years since Easter Sunday have legitimate experiences of the Holy Spirit filling them? See, if he's telling the truth, then he's not being too exclusive. In fact, he's being loving. Let me pose this hypothetical situation to you. Imagine that you get diagnosed with an incurable disease, no known cures, but then you meet a doctor who has had a 100% success rate with some kind of you know, uh, trial medicine, and you go and you meet with this doctor, and you say, listen, I have this diagnosis and I'm certainly going to die. Every dog, I've seen 100 doctors, every single one told me that I'm going to die. And the doctor says, that's because everyone else is wrong. I have the only cure. There's, there's only one known cure. Would you say to that doctor, how exclusive are you? <laughs> how dare you say that all the other doctors can't help me? And you go running back to these Treatments that aren't going to do you any good, right? This is a hy just a hypothetical situation. Would you say, who do you think you are? Is that 100% accessory, right? It's because if Jesus is telling the truth and he's actually made a way for us back to the Father, if he actually offers us truth about God, ourselves, and the world around us, if he actually offers us eternal life, this is not this, this mean, arrogant, insane, exclusive statement. This is one of the most loving things that he could do 
is to actually show us the way to life. So here's what I want to invite you to today. If you're on the fence and you feel like God is calling you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ, would you pray today and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life? I mean, you're not going to get it more clear about who Jesus is than this, right? The way, the truth, and the life. Today can be the day that you actually declare that in your life. And I want to invite you to respond the way Jesus commanded us, and that's through getting baptized. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you believe in God? Would you believe also in Jesus? You can learn more about baptism at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. Continuing through the text in John 14, verse 8, the disciples don't really understand. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, listen, believe my words, believe my works. And uh, Philip asks, really, you know, this might be somewhat of a prove it moment where Philip's like, you say you're the way to the Father. No one else can come to the Father except through you. Show us. Show us the Father. Or maybe Philip hears this invitation from Jesus and it meets his soul's longing to actually see the glory of God. It reminds me of another moment when uh, in Exodus 33, 18, where Moses asked for something very similar. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. Do you remember that in, in Exodus? And God says, it would be too much for you to see me in all of my glory. And so he kind of hides him in the rock and he passes before him. And Moses gets just a small glimpse that's essentially what Philip is asking. Show me the Father. Show me the glory. And Jesus, his response so interesting. He says, I'm right here. I'm right here. Here's the way that we can say it. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Now, we're, we're getting into, this is, this is the complexity of the Trinity, okay? where there's difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet they're all so united that Jesus is able to accurately and truthfully say, those who have seen him have seen the Father. Augustine says it like this, speaking of Jesus, he both exists unchangeably in himself and inseparably in the Father. I don't know if that helps you or if that complicates things more for you. There's a whole, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about this and debate this. It's one of the, the mysteries of God is that Jesus is so united with his father that he's able to say the works that he does, they're not of his own, they're, they're actually the father's works. The words that he speaks, they're not just his own, they were given to him by the father. And he says, if you want to see God, look at me. I think about John 1, 14 where John begins really his gospel by saying this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I wonder if you in your life have that same desire that Philip expresses. Do you desire to see the glory of God? 
Would you pray that prayer this week? Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Maybe you're not convinced yet that Jesus is who he said he was. That's a good prayer for you. God, reveal yourself to me. Show yourself to me. I want to know. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you, you, maybe you wish it was true. You're just not convinced yet. Lord, show me your glory. And this week, as you engage with Scripture, I would encourage you to be looking at the words of Jesus, listening to his voice, spending time in prayer, connecting with the Holy Spirit, even getting outside and seeing the glory of creation. That's the glory of the Father. It's the glory of the Son. It's the glory of the Holy Spirit. And for us as a church to spend time seeking God's glory in our lives and experiencing the first fruits of that beautiful presence that we will experience one day in all of its fullness. Now, I don't want to miss this last piece because this is where it gets really, really practical for us. And that's this idea that when Jesus talks about being the way, he's talking about he's the only way for us to get to God. He's the only way for us to experience salvation. And yet, what the way is, is it's also a way, as in a way of life. I don't know how many of you are watching the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. Anyone? Anyone watching that? It's, a, it's on Disney Plus uh, streaming service. And uh, this is not sponsored by Disney Plus, by the way, the sermon. Uh, but The Mandalorian, in, in case you're unfamiliar with it, it uh, essentially follows this uh, main character who's a, you know, he's, he's a sol- space soldier, essentially, uh, named Din Djarin. And he is, uh, has sworn himself to following this creed, this ancient creed of his people. And he, it, there's all these sorts of rules that they have to follow and these traditions and these customs, right? It's just like entrenched with, you can tell, it's like generations of, of following the Mandalorian creed. And uh, some of it doesn't make sense. Like one of the rules is you're not allowed to remove your helmet in front of other people, right? And it's like, it's like a really bad thing if you remove your helmet. And so whenever these Mandalorians are, these, these soldiers, these space, you know, kind of warriors are interacting with one another, they'll utter this line, this is, this is the way. And that's one of the most, that's probably the most repeated line in the entire series is, and somebody will be like, that's weird, why do you do that? And the response is, this is the way. Well, isn't that so extreme? Like, seriously, you're not going to take off your helmet? You know, it, we're like having a meal here. This is the way. This is the way. And really what that's a reference to, as, as extreme as the Mandalorian creed and all the rules and all that sort of stuff is and seems to the people that this space warrior interacts with, he has really sworn his life to following a specific way, which is not unlike what it means to be a follower of Jesus, In Matthew 7, there's a narrow way. There's a road that we follow. It's the way of Jesus. John Mark Comer says it like this. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so what that means is, when it comes to following Jesus, we must learn his way. We must learn the way that he lived his life and seek to live our lives as closely to it as possible. So what do we do? We pray as he prayed. His disciples said, teach us to pray. And so we pray that way. We want to pray like Jesus prayed. We want to serve like Jesus served. We want to have compassion 
on the outcasts, on the, on the oppressed, like Jesus had compassion. We want to share the good news. That was his mission. He was always talking about the good news. He was always talking about this thing, the kingdom of heaven. We want to devote our lives to that. If Jesus fasted, guess what we're going to do? We're going to fast. Think about how Jesus lived his life and seek to live your life as closely as possible to the way of Jesus. And, and let me tell you this, it's gonna seem a whole lot more extreme than refusing to remove your helmet to the world. People say, why do you live that way? Why do you give money to the poor? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you fast? Why don't, like have a meal, what are you doing? This is the way. This is the way of Christ. Jesus himself is the way the truth, and the life. And when you have Jesus, you have true life. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.